So every so often we do what we call a night of worship, where we just come together and spend some time singing and worshiping all night long. I know not everybody can make it out to those, and so from time to time we like to do what maybe we might call a morning of worship, which is what we're doing this morning. It just seemed appropriate considering the series we've been in talking about uh, the love of God and how God commands us to love and uh, then in the process of that, I was looking at that there's very few worship songs that talk about how much we love God or expressing our love to God. And so this morning, actually, if you haven't figured it out yet, all the songs we're doing this morning are all about us expressing our worship back to God instead of just songs about God's love for us, His grace for us. These are all songs, there's only a select few out there really talking about our love back to God. And when I started thinking about the, the, the words night of worship and was thinking about what the word worship means, uh, I don't think we have a really good definition for worship. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think our, our understanding of worship is skewed. Uh, when, when we talk about worship, like if somebody says, oh, we're going to night of worship, like what's that mean? What's, what's, that, what's night of worship? A night where you're going to sing a bunch, right? Or if you say that church has really good worship, or I come in after worship. So how many of y'all come in after worship? They're probably still out there because they're not used to us only doing two songs. They're waiting for the third song, thinking it's about to come, and it ain't going to be coming because this is one of those mornings we're switching it up. Uh, whenever we talk about that, we're really just talking about singing. And if you look outside of church, though, I think the, people, the way people use the word worship outside of church is a much better definition of what worship actually is than the way we use it inside church. Because uh, outside of church, we hear people say things like, oh, man, that dude worships the ground she walks on. Or maybe you have a friend like, oh my gosh, it's just so annoying. Like, she practically worships him. Right? Those are actually better uses of the word worship than we use it. We just use it synonymous for singing. It's just like a substitute word for singing, which isn't really what worship is. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at theological dictionaries, many of those have a difficult time interpreting it. So I, I have lots of dictionaries at my disposal. I mean, I'll go Webster's, Miriam. But on top of that, as a pastor, I've got biblical encyclopedias and theological dictionaries and Hebrew-English dictionaries and Greek-English dictionaries. And sometimes you just have to search through dictionaries to really find a good definition for the word which really captures it. And I'm not familiar, if you, know, if you don't know this other dictionary, though, it's actually had a lot of good profound stuff in it um, for the definition of worship, especially uh, was one called the Urban Dictionary. And <laughs> it described worship as an act of throwing away all dignity and self-respect. Like when it says that he worships the ground she walks on, what it's saying is he's throwing away all sense of dignity and self-respect when it comes to her. And actually, that is probably the best definition of worship I've read anywhere. Uh, if you go back into scriptures, you'll see this kind of thing happen. When, when King David has been trying like crazy to get the Ark of the Covenant, which was that thing that Moses and them carried around uh, throughout the wilderness and ultimately became the centerpiece of, of the tabernacle, and ultimately Mo, or David wanted to be the centerpiece for the temple, uh, he wanted it to come back to Jerusalem. was in Jerusalem at the time. He wanted it back in Jerusalem, and they had a lot of problems getting it there. And when they finally got the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, he just busts out in dancing. And he happens to not be wearing any clothes at the time. He's got just his underwear on. He's just dancing before God, and a bunch of other people see him. And his wife comes in and says, well, I hope you're proud of him with as undignified of a display as that was out there dancing around in your underwear. And he says, I will become even more undignified than this when it comes to my worship of God. And what was she saying? You have lost all sense of dignity and self-respect in the way that you're worshiping right now. 
And he says, yeah, that's actually the definition of worship. I don't know if you looked it up in the Urban Dictionary, honey, but that's actually the definition of worship. And somehow we've moved far from the idea of that being worship to simply just us talking about singing. Why? Well, because there is a nature of worship which is singing. I mean, if you think about back to that guy or that girl who worships somebody, uh, typically what you'll also find is they're probably, if you listen to their playlist or you ride around in their car, what are they listening to? Love songs, right? Back in the day, it was a mixtape. Nowadays, it's playlists. And I was actually kind of surprised. I was looking around on Spotify. It doesn't matter what kind of music you're into. They know at some point you're going to fall in love. Uh, Because, of course, there's country love songs and there's pop love songs. Uh, but there's also all other kinds of stuff. There's a love vibe, if you're kind of like into that kind of eclectic music. Uh, there's modern love, whatever that is. Um, there's even love for emo. There's emo love playlist. There's a punk love playlist. And then, of course, you got to have heavy metal playlists, heavy metal love. That's actually a playlist on Spotify, heavy metal love. First thing I looked up in there, Skid Row. I mean, listen, I listened to Skid Row back in the day, too, but I was just thinking to myself, man, if you own Skid Row for love, you can do better. I'm just saying, you can, in more ways than one, you can do better than Skid Row love, all right? Um, there's something profound and deep there. But why is it that we listen to love songs when we're in love or we're in that moment of worshiping somebody? Why? Because in that love song, you're thinking about that person, you're you're remembering things about that person. You're going somewhere in your mind, and there's songs about their eyes and their hair uh, and their body and their touch and their look and their voice and memories that you have and, and things that you want to experience. That's what's all in those love songs, right? And you're just kind of enamored in that. And somebody gets in your car, and they're like, all right, who is it? All right? Or, oh, you got it bad if you're listening to this. You know, the sappier it gets, the worse they are, right? Because they're, they're, they're literally having a worshipful moment over that person. They're lost all, if you're listening to some of that music, you've lost all dignity and self Bieber, really, you're listening to Bieber in your car? You've lost all dignity and self-respect at that point. Holy, holy, holy. Anyways, um, <laughs> speaking of that song, though, that's actually when Isaiah comes into the throne room of God. <laughs> All right, I'll tell you why she's laughing. Um, the next song we're going to sing is Holy, Holy, Holy. <laughs> and I said, I said, can we do Holy, Holy, Holy? I don't know whether it was her or me. It was like the Bieber one or the hymn one. <laughs> and I said, both work. Because um, when Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6 and also in Revelation chapter 4, uh, we get a glimpse of what it's like in the throne room of God. And there in the throne of God, there's these angels that are swirling around the presence of God, and they're singing to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And these angels, uh, within God's presence, they have these six wings, and with two they're covering their eyes, and with two they're covering their feet, and with two they're using them to fly around and hover around the presence of God as they're singing and crying out in worship. And when I was a kid, I used to think that maybe these were like, like I always thought of angels like as heralds, because, you know... They, a lot of times angels come and they bring messages, right? Like is it, maybe these are angels who are kind of announcing, you know, God's presence when they go somewhere. I went to study it more and found that these are angels who are simply just worshiping God in his presence. They're so enamored and taken back that they're, they're just singing about a love for God. And 
the Urban Dictionary didn't have a lot to offer as far as the word holy goes for multiple reasons. It seemed to think that Batman and Robin had defined the term. Some of y'all get that, some of y'all won't. Uh, but holiness is, <laughs> holiness is this element of just absolute pure perfection. And when in the Hebrew, they don't have the word very or the word a lot or the word most. Uh, rather, if you read in, in the English translation of the Old Testament where it says that they fell into a very deep pit, the, the text actually doesn't say very deep pit. What it says is they fell into a pit pit. And that's their way of saying it's like a pit of pits. Like there's a pit and then there's like a pit pit, right? There's good and then there's good, good, right? Uh, or elsewhere, when it talks about uh, the purest gold that's been refined, uh, it doesn't say the purest gold. It says uh, it was gold gold. It was like gold gold, like the gold was gold, even of the gold, right? Nowhere, though, in Hebrew or elsewhere in Scripture do you see a word used three times in a row. You'll never see gold, 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 or pit, 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 because two is all you need uh, to, to, to show the extreme of something. But here, the angels, when they're singing about God's holiness, they just, they are singing out holy, holy, holy. There's holy, holy, and then there's God who is, well, I don't know what is beyond holy, holy. I guess it would just be holy, 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 is what they're singing in that moment. And then also last week, we talked about the fear of God and how there was something about the way church used to be structured years ago with the high cathedral ceilings and the echoes um, and then also the music that we would sing, it just brought about a certain reverence and awe of God. And so instead of singing the Bieber version, I, I wanted to go back and just spend some time singing the, the old hymn version of holy, holy, holy. Uh, and as we sing it, I, maybe for some of you, it'll bring back a memory of, uh, of a church experience where the grandeur and the majesty and the awe of God struck you. Uh, for others of you, I just want you to, to, as you're singing, and maybe close your eyes during the time and just think about what it would be like to be in the very throne room in the presence of God with these angels hovering around God's presence, crying out, holy, holy, holy. Just, en- just enamored and in awe of God's beauty and his splendor. Where the only word that could come to mind is just holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. For some of you, you may want to just sit and reflect. Others, you may want to stand in reverence. Uh, whatever it is that God leads you to do, I just ask you to respond uh, as you sing along with us and we continue our time in worship.
fully understand holiness. I it's this experience where in the presence of God there's this combination of overwhelmed just by the awe and the beauty of his presence. Yet there's also this experience where you're be, you're becoming emotionally wrecked at the same time. Um, Isaiah has this. He he sees there in the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6 when he sees uh, the presence of God there in the temple. These angels are uh, going around just singing out holy, holy, holy. And then he also kind of has this moment where he says, oh no, oh no. So he's, 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 he's awe-inspired yet emotionally wrecked at the same time. Uh, and, and trying to describe this, I was sort of thinking through uh, a couple of years back I was reading about uh, the, the story of the rise and fall of the Blackberry. If you all remember Blackberry, they were like the smartphone back in the day. Uh, some of you all don't even remember Blackberry is and the reason why is what I'm about to tell you. Uh, they 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 had taken the the smart world by or smartphone world by storm. Uh, everybody who was anybody had a BlackBerry kind of thing. Everybody wanted these things. It was the hot device. And the guys who invented it uh, talk about the first time they saw an iPhone. And he says we were just absolutely enamored and in awe of the beauty and the simplicity of the interface. I mean, a touchscreen's everywhere now, but back then nobody had ever seen a touchscreen. And they just looked at it and were just amazed by it. At the same time that he says we were amazed and enamored of what we had seen, we also knew we were done. We didn't have anything in our production line that was anywhere close to that. We were years away from being anywhere near that, and by then the market would have passed, and we were done. We instantly knew that changed everything, and our entire business model was gone. A similar kind of experience is, uh, I've, you know, I've never seen a diamond on somebody's hand that didn't look sparkling and beautiful. You with me on this? I mean, just look at it and you're, wow, that's beautiful. However, if you take that diamond, whatever it is, no matter how sparkling, no matter how beautiful it is, and you take it to a jewelry store, They have a way of making you feel as though you are the cheapest, <laughs> non-loving, non-romantic person ever. Because they'll go, oh yeah, it does look nice. And then what do they do? They pull out a diamond, which truly is flawless and colorless with a perfect cut. And all of a sudden, this diamond of yours that looks so beautiful and sparkling in the natural sunlight, and now under their light, now is this chipped up, yellow, tarnished thing that really shouldn't be on your finger. You with me on this? Because it just doesn't compare. This is the experience Isaiah had when he came before God. I mean, he was a priest before God. He was the, the holiest and the cleanest of all the people. Uh, and on top of that, he, he, you know, he was one who clearly could write very well because we're still reading his book today, uh, but would speak the words of God to the people. And the best, holiest things about him were the words that he would say on God's behalf. And the same with me. Uh, I mean, the, the holiest, best part of me is, is these few moments we spend together each week when I'm telling you what the Word of God says. That's, that's the best, holiest part of me. And, and here's what Isaiah says. He says, it says, as I came into the temple, there was these angels there with the wings 
And he says, and they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And just at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook throughout the temple as it was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I'm among a people of unclean lips. And here my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. The holiest, best part of him now all of a sudden looked like, a, looked like a diamond that you brought into the jewelry store. Where it's like, oh, I guess I didn't spend very much on that. Or as good as your BlackBerry device looked on a Monday, when you saw the new device on Tuesday, instantly you were just like, oh, we're done. We're done. That's the moment that he has when he looks at the holiest, purest part of his life before God. And then what comes next is not good. Everywhere you read about, now if you haven't read enough, you don't know what's coming next. Isaiah had read enough to know what's coming next. And the reason why he says I'm done for is anytime somebody came into the presence of God, they were done for. Uh, Maybe you haven't read a lot, but maybe you've watched a lot. Uh, What happened in Indiana Jones when they opened up the Ark of the Covenant and when God's presence was revealed? It melted their faces off, right? The consuming presence of God's holiness took the Nazis out. Yeah. It didn't exactly happen that way in the Bible. <laughs> but people didn't live to tell about it. We're getting at. Now picture this. You're Isaiah. You're full aware of the history of what happens in this moment. And then you see this, and then one of those angels that had been hovering around, covering their faces and their feet with their wings and hovering around with their other set of wings who are screaming out, holy, 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 their voice is so loud it shook the temple posts. He says, one of them took a live coal in his hand that he had to pull from the altar of God with a set of tongs and started flying right at me. So now what you've got is this angel coming at you with the fire of God. If it wasn't already terrifying enough in the moment, recognizing your own sinfulness before God, now the very thing that you thought might happen is happening at you. What's your heart doing in this moment? Your feet are shaking, your heart is pounding, and you're just looking before God going, this is it, my last moments, I hope to see you on the other side, right? And so, so this seraphim flew at me with this live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he came down. Now, picture this thing is coming right down at his mouth. Is that terrifying to anybody else besides me? Like, I used to be, I was like, oh, okay. So he came down and. and t- <laughs> and it touched my mouth. And right when he thinks he's done for, all of a sudden he realizes he hasn't been consumed. And he hears the words of this angel say, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. What he thought was going to be a consuming fire, which would absolutely just take him in that moment, became an atoning fire to him. A cleansing fire over his soul. The very sin which he deserved to be destroyed for in that moment was taken away by the fire of God. 
And you can just imagine what you would feel like in that moment when you see this thing coming at you, knowing your demise is hitting you, but it doesn't. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with a sense of awe and wonder at God's grace. Ultimately, for worship to be worship, it's a response to recognizing God for who he is and who I am in light of him and what he's done on my behalf and recognizing that I have no right whatsoever to stand before God because of my sin. But yet when you realize the love of God isn't, isn't just a consuming fire that could take you, but it is also a cleansing fire which will purify you, it gets to the point of absolute overwhelmingness where you're just taken aback by it. Over towards the end of the book of Hebrews, after Hebrews has talked about the sacrifice that Jesus made again and again and again, all the book of, the, of Hebrews is about the sacrifice that, that has been made on your behalf. He summarizes up the whole book with this statement. He says, therefore, whenever you see the word therefore, it's sort of like saying, taking everything we've just talked about, summarizing it all in here, this now is what you should understand or conclude or do. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So he's taking this, he's saying, not only has God forgiven you, which would be enough, would it not? I often tell you, this life's about nothing more than a loving relationship with Jesus Christ that you'll enjoy for all eternity. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, it's not just that God forgave you, but he also wants to live with you. Right now, he is, he is, he is somewhere preparing a place for you and him to enjoy all for all eternity. He says, when you take that all in, he says, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably in reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Like, never forget the fact that God could take you in a moment, but he doesn't, and he invites you to have an everlasting relationship with him. This next song uh, we'll be singing is a song that, uh, the reality of it hit me one time when I was sitting right over there in the corner in that last row, uh, shortly after Melissa had died. And I think the sermon that morning was on something about marriage and relationships. And I remember as I was coming forward to take communion, I remember thinking to myself, none of that matters to Melissa right now. I mean, yes, it's good, you know, and, I, and I'll teach messages on marriage and relationships because we need to know how to apply God's principles and his, his promises to our earthly relationships. That's an important thing. But I remember sitting there thinking to myself, none of that matters right now. The only thing that matters right now is this table right here. That's it. The exchange is you understand what went on with your sin before God. That's the only thing that matters before God for all eternity. I don't know what your worship looks like. I remember talking with a friend of mine who, he didn't believe in God, and the more we talked over time, eventually he says, okay, I believe in God. He says, but I got this thing. He's like, I was in church the other day, and I saw this woman, and she had her eyes closed, and she was kind of like doing this whole thing. And it was funny, because on the one hand, he was saying, she looked like a nut, okay? I mean, she just did, okay? I, I think the Urban Dictionary would describe her as having lost all sense of dignity and self-respect. And on the one hand, he was like, if I become a Christian, tell me I'm not going to look like that, okay? But then he also, the more we talked, he kept saying things like, he's like, well, clearly there's something going on with her and God that I haven't experienced. 
And I kind of want some of that. I just don't know if I want to look like that. And he's like, explain this to me. And the best I could explain it is to go to the book of Luke in Luke chapter 7. There's this guy. So there's a guy just like you who, who believes in God. He just doesn't love God. And he's there talking with Jesus in the middle of their conversation. There's this woman who comes in who literally doesn't care about her own self-respect and has lost all sense of dignity because she breaks into this meeting and she pours perfume all over Jesus' feet. She washes his feet with his hair and her tears. And it is literally an act of just, there's no dignity or self-respect in this moment. And this guy who believes in God looks over at him and he says, what's with this? And Jesus says, let me, let me tell you a story. Let me ask you a question. There's these two guys who owe somebody a lot of money. One owes like a million bucks and one owes like 10 bucks. And the guy who, you know, who's owed all the money says, I forgive both of y'all. Which one of those two people is going to love him more? And this guy looks back kind of like, okay, what, a, what kind of dumb question is this? The guy who got forgiven of a million dollars is probably going to love him a whole lot more than the guy who got forgiven of 10 bucks. He says, exactly. Your problem, the reason why you don't love God very much is because you don't think you have a lot to be forgiven for. She, however... She's a prostitute. We all know what she's got to be forgiven for. It's pretty obvious. And when she realizes just how much God loves her, she don't care what anybody thinks. She just cares about God in that moment. And that lady you saw over kind of swaying, and one, I was like, I don't know what her backstory is, but clearly she don't care what you think about her. He's like, obviously. <laughs> she don't care about anybody else, whatever else thinks. She's just worshiping God. The level to which you love God is in direct proportion to how much sin you see in your own life. And realize when you realize just how sinful you are before God, and you think about how much God has forgiven you for, that will increase your love and your response to God in worship. So I just want you to uh, be thinking about that before God about how in light of that, what else really will matter in your life a thousand years from now? What else would be your response to a God who has given his life for you, forgiven you? As we sing this next song, I just want you to be thinking about the grace that God has shown over your life, the forgiveness he's poured out over your life, and what your response is to that.
as we get ready to uh, share in communion, there's uh, another one of these summary passages that's made in the Scripture, like, you know, what do you do in light of everything that God has done for you? And, and the book of Romans just talks about all of God, uh, God has done, and, and, and throughout it, it talks about how, how we have our sin before God, that God has forgiven us. There's these passages in there, maybe some of y'all heard of them. It talks about all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The, the, what we've earned with our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Uh, it's just amazed and overwhelmed. So all of Romans is about uh, our sin before God and God's grace over us and how the only way that we're ever made right before God is simply by entering into this relationship with him, by placing our trust in what Jesus Christ did at the cross and our hope in God's love over us. And when this all comes to an end, it's like, you know, now given all of these things, another one of those therefore statements at the end of the book of Romans, it says there, now therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, those who, who are in a relationship with God, he says, in light of God's mercy or in view of God's mercy, in other words, and when you think about everything that God has done, when you take in the grace that God has poured over your life and in spite of your sinfulness, that God has loved you and shown his mercy over you, he says that you would offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. often thought I would much rather be a dead sacrifice than a living sacrifice, right? I mean, who among us wouldn't want the opportunity to be able to lay down our life for someone we love? You know, I would take a bullet for you uh, to be able to walk into heaven. Like, how'd you get here? Well, you know, I, I jumped in front of a, a car to save my daughter, right? And for all time, you remember it as dad of the year, right? Dad of the century for what you've done. It's a much harder thing to be a living sacrifice, isn't it? Where every day I put you before me. Every day I put your needs in front of my own. I would much rather just do something one time, heroically, throw it all out there and be done with it, wouldn't you? But he says, in light of everything that God has done for you, you know, how do I possibly thank God for that? It's to offer your life as a living sacrifice to him, that you would surrender your whole life before him. As we move into our time of communion, as you come forward to receive communion, what we're reminded of as we look at this table is Jesus Christ literally surrendered his entire life for you and for me. He was a sacrificial death that we might have a sacrificial life. And so he says, come and take a reminder that my body was broken for you. I gave my life for you. He lived his life for us as a living sacrifice day in and day out, and then he ultimately gave his life for you and for me. And so we come forward to be reminded that he literally gave his life for our sins. We might be forgiven before God. And then the cup, of course, is a reminder that his promise will never fade, it will never leave us. It is an everlasting covenant he's made. Uh, so as you come forward for communion this morning, we come down the center aisles where the columns are, we turn back to the sides or to the center. We sing a song about surrender. I just want you to think about what this looks like and means in your life. For Isaiah, right after he has this moment where the angel comes and cleanses his lips, his next words, the angel says, you know, who will go on our behalf? Who will go and share this with the world? Uh, this love, this atoning grace for who God is. And Isaiah just looks around and says, well, here am I, send me. I will go. I'll go wherever you want. And Isaiah goes from just simply being a priest before God to being a radical prophet used by God in a very difficult time, in a very difficult season. May you be thinking about what does it mean for me to be a living sacrifice before God? To those God's placed in my life, 
and also be on my community and beyond. Will you come?